This is a wee bit of everything. The podcast that explores all things sport and teaching. Hello there and welcome to the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast with your hosts Lewis and Clark. Thanks for coming back to tune in to this week's episode. We really are amazed by all the support we have received from everyone so far. Our partner of the podcast is Premiership Experience who have played a big role in helping us develop. Premiership Experience offer fantastic sports tours within the UK and abroad so be sure to check them out on Twitter at Prem Experience. This is a professional learning platform where we get ideas and insights from like-minded professionals. Our vision is to inspire, to teach and to entertain. So let's get started with this week's episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. This week on the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast, we welcome Jonathan Firth with us. Jonathan is a psychology teacher, teacher educator, an author and a researcher. He works at the University of Strathclyde and in particular the School of Education, teaching on the PGDE BA and Masters programmes. Jonathan's teaching focuses particularly on psychology education and psychological perspectives on learning. So I think, Mr Burrow, we are in for an interesting conversation tonight. As always, no, I'm really looking forward to getting Jonathan on. He also has done a lot of research primarily on memory and metacognition, which is episodes that we've covered in recent weeks uh, with Kate Jones. And he's also interested in how and why teachers engage, engage with research and the links this has with their professionalism and practice. So without further ado, we'll welcome Jonathan on to the Wee Bit of Everything podcast. Right, hi Jonathan, um, welcome to the Wee Bit of Everything podcast. How's your day been? Uh, thanks very much. Um, it's been good. I've been through in Edinburgh, um, serving as student teacher, um, so it was fun to, fun to go through there. Um, it's uh, one of these times a year um, working in the university sector that we're, we're out and about a lot. Me and my colleagues are out visiting schools a lot, but that, that can be fun because you see a lot of different classes, a lot of different practice going on. Yeah, I'm sure that's interesting. I'm sure you, you learn loads and um, it's good to get out of the office. Yeah, <laughs> now and then. although I've not been in the office very much then. Oh, that's right. You're probably working from home. You're still working from home then, yeah? For the most part, I was actually in uh, last week, but um, for the most part we are, yeah, it's, it's, okay. it's pretty dead when I go in, there's hardly anyone there. Is it? That's just a bit, as I suppose. Um, yeah. But um, thanks for joining us to kind of share your experience and knowledge in relation to uh, psychology and, and teaching psychology to students. Um, so before we get into that side of it, could you give us and the listeners a little background information on your career to date? Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, my background, I did a degree in psychology and a master's in applied linguistics, and I was kind of in the early days of my career going down the route of kind of language teaching actually I worked abroad for a bit teaching English as a foreign language um, but I ended up um, uh, quite, a, quite a very long time ago now um, sort of almost 20 years ago now getting involved in psychology teaching when it was first kind of being taught as a hire it was really just um, in the late 90s um, and, and just after the, a lot of new subjects had come in to um to the curriculum after the the so-called higher stills um the review of the curriculum at that point so there's things like higher philosophy higher psychology higher sociology that were suddenly being offered by some schools um so it was an opportunity for me at that point to get involved um and uh it, I, I, th- I don't think i really kind of thought i was going to be doing it for as long as 
I, you know, I did, um, but I, I really enjoyed teaching psychology at school level. Um, got involved in lots of things, got involved in SQA marking, got involved in writing psychology textbooks. Um, and then eventually, uh, a bit further down the line, um, got into the post that I'm in now, which is working at the University of Strathclyde and the PGDE. Well, I work on a few programmes, but I started off really working on the PGDE programme, helping to develop new psychology teachers. Have you um, got, so was a, sorry, go ahead. So, so how many students are on the kind of PGDE programme and the, the, BA, the BA programme? How many students uh, do you train up each year? At Strathclyde in general, yeah. or just me, particularly? No, just just within the psychology, can I? Oh yeah, psychology is pretty small because the PGD as a whole is um, in, in in Strathclyde. It's over nine hundred um, that do PGD each year, but we only typically have about eight or nine students for psychology. So you know, right, it's a okay. fairly it's a fairly small proportion, but it's um it's kind of about making it sustainable and making sure that there's a chance for the you know, yeah, for the, the new students to 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 actually get get a job after that. Yeah, I thought it was P, quite nice. P. To, there's 20, isn't there? I think roughly P. Yeah. It must be something like that. Yeah, 2024, yeah. something like that. I don't know off the top of my head. Mm. Um, but um, some of the subjects are a lot bigger, you know, English, biology, subjects like that are really, really huge. And then there's yeah. loads of primary PGD as well. That's by far the by far bigger than any of the secondary subjects. Mm. So um, based on the government, did they just kind of dictate the, the numbers for that? Yeah, I'm, I, I don't know too much about that side of the process, but I believe it's the government and GTCS that set the kind of targets based on, I, I presume, kind of analysing the market of where there's shortages for particular subjects. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of, in, in terms of psychology, it's only been running, um, I think, six years. Um, right. So it was, it was quite nice, actually, this morning when I was out observing a student teacher, um, the mentor... Um, uh, who was uh, in the department kind of mentoring the student is was one of the first cohorts of psychology teachers that I taught so it's quite nice to see some of the some of my early students now kind of mentoring the new generation of teachers that are coming through. That's good that must be good to see the kind of progression there for you as well. It's nice I mean one of the things I love about it is actually seeing like young people getting a chance to study psychology because I know it's a bit of a niche subject I think there's really a lot to be gained from actually getting that sort of knowledge of, of human behavior and knowledge of themselves I've seen it across the pandemic like you know I've got kids myself and just that's understanding stress understanding sleep understanding you know social relationships especially when you're a bit kind of disconnected from your your friends and and, and classmates so I think it's a great thing for um, young people to understand themselves as much as anything else. Yeah, hundred percent. We were saying that last week in the podcast. Yeah, Lewis. Definitely. I was thinking, see, in terms of like, as part of, because I know like some schools are teaching like health and wellbeing inputs now within like the BG curriculum, like as a kind of extra of PE almost. Um, but yeah. I think like some of the psychology stuff would obviously tie in really nicely with that. But see, in terms of like teachers' professional development, is there anywhere in particular that you could go to to get a wee bit more insight into that side of things? Just. Um, if you are responsible for taking a health and wellbeing class. Yeah, I mean, um, I think there's a, there's a big overlap there, as you say. I mean, health and wellbeing is quite broad. It encompasses things like physical wellbeing and being fit and healthy and understanding diet and all kinds of things. Yeah. But it does also encompass um, some kind of psychological wellbeing and understanding stress and being able to manage things in, in your own life so um yeah i think it's a it's an important area for professional development um i guess um 
it kind of depends perhaps on the on the model that school takes because they may have specialists so you know you know like we're just talking about you know they may have somebody who's say the psychology teacher for example who then feeds into that and in fact psychology uh, is actually put as part of the health and well-being curriculum area um rather than say under science which it could be but um it, that that's the way that the um that's the way that they decided to do it um so yeah, in terms of professional learning, I mean, I guess it really just depends what somebody's targets are. I mean, we we run certain and career-long professional learning sessions from Strathclyde. There's a there's a program that's available that's I think emailed around to schools and local authorities. So for example, my um, my colleague Monica Portiana Portiana and myself were um, doing a, a mental health related um, CLPL session just just the other weekend. Um, so there are things going on. I'm sure quite a few of the other universities offer things like that as well. Mm -hmm. So um, can I can I get into the kind of your most recent research then, Jonathan? Um, would you be able to share some insights or findings from your, your your psychology research, and how would this impact you know our teaching practice or your practice in terms of training teachers? Yeah, this, uh, I mean, it's a good question because I think although I, I started off as a, as a psychology teacher, I became increasingly interested in like the psychology of learning really. And, um, and there is such a massive overlap between psychology as a subject and teaching and learning and uh, things like motivation, memory, all these areas are, are pretty interesting to me. But in particular, memory was the one that I started becoming <clears throat> very interested in doing a lot of professional reading on when I was still working in a secondary school. Um, and then kind of went down the route of um, doing a PhD part-time. Um, so that that's kind of how I got into that. And in terms of like my current research, it's sort of broadened out into a few a few different areas, um, one of which is um, metacognition. So just to, just to kind of explain, I mean, I'm sure it's probably fairly self-explanatory why memory is quite important to education because um, young people and well, anybody who's in, going through education is, um, is gonna have to remember knowledge, facts, skills, um, you know, it's going to be stored in memory somehow. But then as I, as I delved into the research into memory, it became increasingly obvious that there was a lot of misconceptions about memory, that it's not obvious, it's not intuitive, and that often people assume it works in a very different way from how it actually works. Um, and that's pupils, but it's also teachers. You know, sometimes if you ask teachers, you know, how do you think memory works? And they'll, they'll tell you, and not only do they often get it wrong, but they often... What, what I found with some of my recent research, for example, one paper that was published earlier this year, is that it doesn't make any difference how much experience you have. In fact, the more experienced teachers actually did worse in my research um, when I looked at um, beliefs about things that, um, uh, like how memory, how long-term memory works. Um, but I think all of that just kind of shows that it's really not obvious um, unless you've actually read up on it or had it as part of your teacher education um, or in-service you know, education. You, you're just not going to know. You, you, you don't. Your assumptions or people's assumptions about memory tend to be wrong. So I think that's probably one of the biggest areas of where you know my kind of psychology interests have impacted on on my my own teaching, but also kind of research that I try to share with other people. Yeah, would you say memory is like a skill then? And the more you kind of practice it, then your memory, your long-term memory, obviously gets better. No, is that the kind of the right way? I mean. To an extent, I don't think that you just generally get better at using your memory. There doesn't seem to be a particularly good 
And for example, things like brain training don't, don't work very well. I mean, you get better at doing the same thing that you've been practicing, but it doesn't like generalize to everything else. And I think it's probably that's that's really a kind of a working memory thing, but it's probably yeah. largely true for long term memory as well. So, I mean, you could have studied, um, you know, you know, spent 10 years studying and learning, I don't know, languages or, or science or whatever. But it doesn't mean you're automatically going to be amazing at learning people's names or, you know, remembering mm -hmm. your shopping list or something like that. It doesn't yeah. really generalize in that way. But what I think that in where I would say I would agree that it is like a skill is with things like study skills. So I think when it comes to learning how to learn um, and young people, um, you know, usually young people, like, I mean, again, it could be older people, but particularly young people going through school and doing their exams for the first time, mm -hmm. um, then I think there's an important opportunity there to help them learn how to study effectively and how to use their memory effectively. Um, and if they do that, then it will set them up quite well for uh, further study that they then do after that point um, but I don't think it's happening very well or very effectively and I'm I'm, I'm frequently speaking to people who say things like I was never told this you know yeah. um, it would have been handy to know this five years ago uh, that kind of thing and I, I should probably point out sorry go ahead no I was, I was gonna say like it seems like all this like stuff on retrieval practice and all that like I wasn't really familiar with it when I was going through my postgrad and that wasn't that long ago um, mm -hmm. I just I feel like it's qu quite fairly recent. Like all this stuff is just like grown and grown and grown. But that I might be wrong there. But that's what it feels like in terms of my experience with it. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, probably it reaches different people at different times. But yeah. you know, I mean, as I mentioned, I did a degree in psychology, and you know, nevertheless, when I started out my teaching career, I didn't really know about retrieval practice. I didn't really know about the spacing effect and things like that. That mm -hmm. I, you know, it's kind of a major uh, thing. That, you know, things that I write about and, and talk to students about now um i think it started to get you know the, i probably started to hear more about these kind of things about maybe 10 12 years ago yeah um but maybe just because i was kind of reading in these sorts of things and, mm -hmm. and sort of vaguely aware of the research but i think it's definitely become more widespread and more popular. more mainstream yeah well, uh, what, yeah so, so, so what's your thoughts on when when like we, we sometimes get told from teachers or oh, it's just the same thing by a different name <laughs> what's, your th what's your thoughts on that as a researcher? <laughs> obviously, I mean, finds out new stuff and new findings. I mean, I think, you know, it can be a valid criticism uh, to an extent. I think, um, you know, we probably have been doing quite a lot of the things um, that we might, you know, say, take retrieval practice, for example. Mm -hmm. We have been doing some of those kinds of things already. Yeah. Um, but I think there is something to be said for actually understanding how it works and yeah, maybe doing it a bit more systematically yeah i feel like i feel like when i was at school we did do a lot of that so say like i can always remember going into my french lessons and we always did like a, a 10 question quiz at the start of every single one of my mm. lessons um, on stuff that we'd already previously kind of learned but i'm not too sure obviously i didn't have a clue about like retrieval practice and like <laughs> back then and or if my teachers did or if that was just how they can they can be taught so i think it is something that ha that does get used and has been getting used for a while. Yeah. I think, like you say, maybe it's just people's understanding of it has maybe been more enhanced than how actually kind of when to do it as well. How, how much of an impact it has. Yeah, when to do is an important question. And, and like, I, like I was saying before, I think that people's intuitions and assumptions about this are often wrong. So, I mean, clearly we have been doing quizzes forever. You know, people have do, been doing closed book tests forever, things that involve retrieval from memory. But we don't often make good assumptions about 
what the best way to do it is and, and when we should do it. Um, so a lot of these things I don't think have been particularly widespread teaching practice. And if you look at um, like the assumptions of students, you know, when I was talking about, you know, kind of making sure they actually understand how studying works and how to do it effectively, most people, a lot of students will say that they use things like quizzing, self-testing, but they'll tend to say they do it in order to find out what they know. So they do it because they maybe do flashcards and they test themselves because they think, okay, I know certain things I need to find out. It's like dipping something into your oil in your car to figure out how much is there. But what they perhaps don't appreciate is the process of, of retrieving it is actually making it stick better in their memory. And if they don't appreciate that, then there's a tendency to make bad judgments. So for example, think, okay, I've got it right once, I can leave it now. And I think teachers do that as well. So if you have things like exit passes at the end of a class, you know, it's kind of like, well, we've done this in class, kids give them a little quiz, they got it right, and then they, they often the assumption is they've learned it. And in fact, I would say, no, they haven't. You know, they, they, we can't really say that they've learned it unless they could do it spontaneously, you know, a few weeks down the line. Um, you know, what we're going to see is a, a great deal of forgetting after that initial uh, study session. Mm -hmm. I was in a, in a book I read kind of recently, I was saying just because you, you've taught it doesn't mean it's been learned, and there's like that gap in between there. Where I think yeah. the, the, the kind of idea was that's when you maybe do the like bringing it back, like the retrieval practice stuff. But an, another thing that I found like really fascinating was um, like to do with like studying, like by highlighting and stuff like that. I think it was a, it was on a, a VCPD thing I was on the other week, and um, actually how more successful it was to like retest yourself and how much that was stored in your sort of long term memory, like testing yourself regularly versus like just studying mm -hmm. a passage. I think that's what the study was. Um, yeah. and how, how much stronger it was after doing that like it's just something that seeing that on that infographic it actually really made me kind of think well that's quite powerful actually it's something to do with like the power of forgetting as well like if you teach something then do it a week later and they forget it but you can do it two weeks later and then they'll know it mm -hmm. there's something to do with like the, the time as well there's a power of forgetting and you can obviously go back and reteach certain elements yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And, and I think these things, one of the things that I find really useful about these kind of ideas is that if you understand them, they're actually very powerful because they can apply to lots of situations. Mm -hmm. um, you can, you know, take something like the timing or the idea of active retrieval and you can apply that to pretty much any subject at any level, you know, any age group. Um, but again, I, people will make will make quite flawed assumptions. I mean, I quite often I'm speaking to um, school age people still, even though I work at university now. And, you know, I often hear that you say highlighter pens or, you know, ask them how they study. One of them said to me recently, we were told to use purple pens and we were told we would remember 70% more by using a purple pen. I mean, <laughs> it's just made up. And, you know, that's not a great message to be given to young people when there is actually pretty sound research evidence about how memory works one thing i was going to say actually in your answer to, to your last question is when we talk about memory i think sometimes people are like well hang on a minute education is not really just about memorizing things and i would sort of push back against that because actually the memory um our memories are involved in everything we do including skills so you know some of my research has actually looked at skills like analysis and, and evaluation in school pupils um and, and similar principles are still applying uh, so I was looking particularly at interleaving, which is the idea that if we compare and contrast different examples from different uh, categories, um, then they're better learned than looking at lots of examples from the same category. Um, and that's quite often associated with people maybe sort of cramming for tests. But in fact, um, you know, in my research, I was showing that it was superior when um, people were using it for analytical skills as well. So it's not as if we're just talking about really low level knowledge here with some of yeah. these principles. 
But see, mm. see if there's any kind of students listening then just now, what would you say are the kind of main common misconceptions then about like how we interpret what memory is? Um, I think that, I, I guess we probably think of memory as being, we probably think of memories as being quite separate from each other. I would imagine a lot of students do, they kind of, and this is maybe, although flashcards are great for retrieval practice, they perhaps slightly mislead students into thinking, right, okay, we'll just have a piece of information, a flashcard, I'll just try and memorize it, which is not actually really how the memory works best, because memory works best by kind of linking things together and building an understanding. So I think there's a, there's a sort of misconception that perhaps that, you know, a little bit like I was just saying before, that memory and understanding are kind of two really separate things, when in fact you remember stuff much better if you understand it. So if you, if you imagine reading a, a text in a foreign language, you know, if you, you, you would read it and then like two minutes later, you would remember nothing because you didn't understand it. Whereas if you read a text in English, you would probably remember a fair bit of it the next day. So, you know, understanding something allows us to remember it much more successfully. Or another example might be if, you, if you've like studied loads of physics and then you read a physics textbook, because you understand it, you're going to remember that stuff yes. much better than somebody who was a complete novice and most of it's just going over their head. So I think really building that kind of understanding and, and, and thinking deeply about things and making connections is perhaps an, an undervalued uh, sort of approach to, to remembering things among, among students. Yeah, I think, I think in PE as well, as when you're saying about comparing and contrasting, Answers, I think, something that I could think about in terms of section one, Lewis, when, in PE, where there's like eight small paragraphs. Yeah. But sometimes you just show them model answers um, and, and you just show them where to get some marks. But maybe putting up one that's no marks, one that's maybe one out of two, and one that's two out of two. And just kind of discuss. And try and compare and try and get them to analyse where it gets the marks might, might be a good idea. Is that the kind of thing you were meaning, Jonathan? Compare yeah, I mean, contrast it now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that would be a, a good idea, I think. Um, I think, you know, if you, if you imagine something like a modal answer, then certainly I would think it was, it's useful to get a modal answer to see where the marks come from, but it's probably yeah. more useful if you see, like, this is a good, this is a really good one, this is a medium one, and this is one mm -hmm. that didn't get the marks, and here's why. Yeah. So you actually have that comparison. I was thinking particularly, though, of um, kind of subtly confused concepts. So I imagine you have a few of those in PE and you certainly get loads of these in like science and social science and stuff like that. Whereas two things that students will often get muddled up um, between. And what we tend to do a lot of in education is kind of group things, group similar things together. So this is our topic and we're just going to study this topic. And then like two months later, they study the confusable concept. But because they're seeing it in a completely different study session, you're not putting the the confusable things right beside each other. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So it's more about kind of teachers using their professional judgment to recognize where students often make errors and kind of putting two easily confused examples right beside each other. It might yeah. be that I would imagine it probably applies to physical skills as well. So if you were looking at different footwork or something like that, yeah. in PE, then I would imagine <laughs> that, you know, not doing them in a completely separate training session, but kind of interchanging them yeah. um, would be quite helpful. Okay, thank you one straight away that the common mistake that probably people that are listening made. So we've got tests for physical fitness, like the bleep test, but then we have like approaches to develop CRE, like fat yeah, training. Yeah. But they always they always say like tests and approach, but it's tests a test. So that would right. be thinking maybe kind of yeah. put together and thinking about there. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. It's actually, I'm thinking carefully about how you actually ask the questions so that they actually have to identify the, uh, the correct one when it is mixed in with one that they're going to get confused with. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. They're going to be starter task. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think teachers are generally quite good at probing into, you know, like experienced teachers that are good at questioning are quite good at sort of probing and, and kind of highlighting where, where students are making mistakes and being and being kind of formative in their feedback. But I suppose it's more of a, you know, this can be a planning thing. And it's the same with spacing out the learning, like um, that, you know, you guys were, were just referring to. In, in many ways, it's just a planning thing. We don't necessarily need to do anything that differently, but we could perhaps think about the timing of when we do a particular lesson. And rather than do it all intensively, this sort of subtopic over a week, we could do it over three days and then do another two days a month later. And that way you're actually building the revision and consolidation in. So they have got that bit of forgetting and they're coming back to it mm -hmm. uh, when they're less fresh. But that means that the, the activities are going to have more impact because they're starting to forget it. So I guess my question after like what we've been kind of talking about there, Jonathan, how can we as teachers then support students to study in the best way that suits them? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that in terms of that question, um, I guess we could ask, <laughs> should, they, should they study in the way that suits them or should they perhaps study um, in, in the way, way that we think is, is the most effective? I think that there has to be probably a kind of a middle ground between those two things because we are individuals and we have different preferences and some people are going to be much more comfortable doing one thing than another um but i guess that one aspect would be to kind of just basically inform them of some of these sort of evidence-based study strategies and i don't think they're particularly hard to find out about um for you know for teachers there are a lot of good books and websites and things out there um so i think i i would say you know making sure that evidence-based information is coming through as I say, you know, kind of striking a balance between your preferences versus the things that are actually effective. Because it is the, you know, it's the case that anything is going to be better than nothing. So even if they're studying in a kind of ineffective way, um, but that's the way they like to study, well, it's probably better than not doing it at all. Um, but we probably need to be sort of nudging them in the direction of doing the more effective things more often. And the things that they maybe have a, you know, just happen to like to do, um, but are not very effective, maybe doing those um, a bit less frequently. Um, the, other, the other thing I would say about that is I think we should probably start a bit earlier um, in terms of the school, uh, the, the age groups that we do this um, with. I, I was recently looking at a few school websites to see what kind of advice they give on study skills. And a lot of them seem to have any. Um, but the ones that I did find, that it was quite often hard to find on the school websites and when i did find it it was often listed under like sqa information and if you clicked on the tab that said sqa information then they had advice and study skills so clearly this was only being aimed at s4 to s6 whereas i think that we should probably be doing it at the very least from s1 onwards but possibly earlier you know there's really no reason that primary school pupils we don't need to use terminology like retrieval practice and that kind of thing. Yeah. We don't need to go into the terminology or really the theories or anything like that, but we can start to build successful habits and they can use them. I mean, everything from your kind of like spelling tests or whatever you do in, in early primary school, we can start to, um, yeah. I mean, even very young children are able to engage in metacognition. They're able to think about learning. They're able to talk about learning. Even preschoolers can talk about learning. So um, we can actually from quite an early age, Age, in an age-appropriate way start to build that so that it's not suddenly an S4 when you already have all your national fives to think about you've also got to learn how to study as well you know I don't I don't think that's the most sensible way of going about it I think on a previous episode when we spoke with um, Kate Jones she put it in a really nice way to help me understand it and it was like you wouldn't train for a marathon like you wouldn't cram to train for a marathon it's like little and often to get your 
to build up to that. It's the same with your kind of your memory and your your training to obviously for your exams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's the same as what Jonathan was saying as well. Like something like something's better than nothing. Like yeah. you could train train for a marathon just doing five k. Like yeah, that's right. Every day, but it's not probably the best idea just to keep it. <laughs> The same one every, every day. Have you, have you got like one or two like effective strategies then that, that you, you've seen, you've heard working with students in terms of, of studying? There's a like one or two effective study skills. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, we've kind of touched on a few of the most effective things already. Um, so um, if we talk about retrieval practice, what that really means is you're practicing retrieving information from your memory without it being in front of you. So, for example, a closed book test, if you close your book and then you summarise something. Really interesting example of that in the current climate, actually, because we've just had, you know, the pandemic and online schooling recently and a lot of schools were putting videos online. So it's interesting to think, well, how do the kids use that video? Are they just going to sit and watch it? Or are they going to do something with it? And there's some research that's looked at the kids watching the videos, then after the video, trying to recall as much as they can, write it down, and then perhaps watching the video a second time. Um, and that's much more effective than you know just watching it. And it's even more effective to do that than it is to watch the video twice and then write the notes. Because mm-hmm. if you write the notes the first time from memory, then it kind of keys you into where you're maybe missing things and you pay more attention the second time and pick those up. So, um, but yeah, generally speaking, retrieval practice is all about retrieving things from the memory, which is what you kind of have to do in the exam. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you want to be practicing the more you the more similar your practice is to the real thing the better it's going to be so if you're if your exam involves sitting by yourself in an exam hall and retrieving things from memory then that's probably what your practice should look like um it, your exam doesn't involve sitting and highlighting things from a textbook you so there's not much point in getting really good at doing that because that's not what you're going to have to do on the day and i think um uh i think Although we know that students will do things like read their textbooks and read over their notes, it's perhaps encouraging them to do that in an effective way. So sort of stop, test yourself. Just actually, again, similar things that they might have done in primary school, like cover up and check. Um, But I would also um, encourage them to be thinking about the timing as well. Because again, it's just really powerful. Students will avoid this because it will seem harder to leave it a day and then test yourself. But it's it's much more effective um to 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 test yourself after a delay than to test yourself after like 30 seconds because it's you know it's still really in your short-term memory at that point yeah is there a is there a most like kind of best effective like, amount of time to, to study for like in a single session say you're just studying for your exams in general like i used to hear people saying when i was at school like pupils that they would go they'd be studying for like five hours a day and stuff like that is there mm-hmm. any kind of suggested kind of optimum time i guess or is that just something that's still maybe a great area <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, it, it, I don't know, like, if there's an optimum, but I think there probably are, like, kind of diminishing returns after a point. Yeah. And sometimes I think that some students probably study even a bit too much, you know, um, clearly some students don't study enough, but, you know, there, there may be a point, especially when, you know, and I've seen my kids do this as well, you know, studying for hours and hours in the same day. Um, I think that it would certainly be more effective to divide those study sessions up um Mm -hmm. and also to give yourself breaks you know there's only so much you can take in your concentration starts to fade and and you're not going to be studying it and and learning at the same level so you know i I would be it's funny because a a lot of teachers will load their students up with homework over the holidays and i would say to my students like go ahead and have a break you know you need it you've been working really hard 
Um, so not doing too much, but 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 clearly a bit like you know as yeah. you as you mentioned that Kate Jones had said on your podcast, you know just kind of doing it regular like regular training sessions rather than one big cramming session is going to be a lot more effective. Mm -hmm. So again, you know probably the timing of when you do that study is more important than the absolute amount. And if you're going to, let's say you've got, you, you can allocate 10 hours to, to studying for a particular exam, then it's certainly going to be a lot better to spread that out than it is to do 10 hours in one day. Mm -hmm. no, yeah, it's probably the same mantra as your diet loss, little and often. Little and often. I don't know how quality it is, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, can I move on? We've kind of covered the successful strategies to kind of boost memory retention when studying. I suppose that's what we just covered there. Would you agree, Jonathan? Anything else to add on that on that question? Um, I mean, I guess one other thing perhaps to add, though, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll have come across this, but, you know, there is a tendency for both students and sometimes teachers to do a lot of kind of categorising themselves um, as, like, particular types of learners. And I tend to avoid that. I mean, we know we're all individual, everyone is a little bit different, but at the same time, you know, kind of people categorizing themselves as visual learners or left brain learners and that kind of stuff. I think it's basically unhelpful, um, mm. limiting. And um, in fact, generally speaking, when it comes to things like, um, let's say, visual cues to learning, I think everybody can benefit from those. So it's not really, I don't think it's really particularly helpful to do these quizzes that are about what kind of learner are you and, yeah. and try to study in a particular way accordingly. I think it's really probably better to use a variety of different techniques and to in include quite a lot of variation. So mm -hmm. if you always practice in the same way, you will get quite good at doing that particular type of practice, um, but you will actually develop a more resilient and robust like knowledge and skills if you practice in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, again, I'm sure it's similar with with sports. Yeah. Like if you did all your practice in the in the gym hall and you never, like you know, went somewhere else to do it, then it would probably be harder when you when you when you tried to transfer that. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good advice. Yeah, get a bit of variety into your studying. Variety. That's, yeah. That, that, yeah. That is something that I've kind of heard like been a bit of controversy over that recently and about the the whole visual learner and um, is it kinesthetic learners and stuff like that. Yeah. Like you say, it's just having that having that variety. I guess just to keep it fresh for you, and so you are kind of learning in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's it's generally considered to be a bit of a myth that we can kind of categorize learners in that way. And I think that you know, I'm sure a lot of it was quite well intentioned, but yeah. Um, but yeah, it's certainly going to be more helpful to, like, say for example, you were a geography student who was studying glaciation. It'd be much more helpful to have a diagram and a verbal explanation rather than just one or the other. And mm -hmm. you know, if we can incorporate movement, active learning, these kind of things, it's going to be helpful for everyone, not just for a yeah. small subset of people. I think they all just sort of complement each other, don't they? Like. Like you say, I'd say the more obviously the better to help develop your understanding mm -hmm. of things. I think in PE as well, especially because I was doing that with my. We actually did an interesting task there with the the sports leaders class, and they were um it was about communication, and we did like they had um a verbal. So we did obviously verbal, non-verbal, visual, and written, and they had to do a wee task, and they had to guess what the task was. Um, so verbal, it could, we got them just to solve, so if they were doing a verbal task and it was to complete the task, but they had to stand with their hands by their side and just speak through like the teaching points and stuff. And basically the idea was, it was really difficult to do them using just that one method of communication. However, when you, it was to get them to understand the importance of how the types of communication complement each other. 
some instructions mm. supported by a diagram and then maybe a demonstration <coughs> how all those types of communication can, can help. But I guess it's kind of... So did you try, did you try like just a non-verbal one itself as well? Yeah, so that was like by... Just moving your hand? Yeah, yeah, non-verbal two as well. Point. Yeah, and uh, we did like a... The visual one was like a, a diagram, so they had to like collect a piece of equipment and stuff like that. But actually, I think it worked quite well. So what were they doing? What, what, what was, it? was it the same skill they were trying to do every time? Uh, the written one was they had to do a, an arabesque balance and gymnastics and one of them, the right. verbal one, was they had to um, talk them through how to do the Gay Gordons without actually saying Gay Gordons or social dance <laughs> um, and they had to like speak their way through it but they literally had to do it with their hands by their side but it worked quite well. I think it kind of helped highlight how important using different types of communication actually is. Nice one. Okay, it's um, often interesting just to hear about different teaching, you know, different subjects, and just mm -hmm. I always immediately start thinking about well, how could we apply this or how could we apply that? Because obviously, I'm not a subject mm -hmm. specialist in all these different areas, yeah. and everyone kind of presents with different challenges. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you're looking at something like chemistry or physics is quite different from how you study psychology in school, mm -hmm. um, much more problem based and um, calculation based and that kind of thing. So, you know, that, that has different implications, even if the underlying psychology is actually pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so lastly, then, um, Jonathan, what would your um, opinion be on what makes a high quality teacher? We always assist, but we assist to most of our guests, so it's always okay. interesting to get um, different uh, experiences and how you would perceive a, a high quality teacher. Yeah, I mean, it's an important question, and I'm sure you probably have much better answers than, than I'm going to give you, but. Um, it's it's just so important to have a high quality, to, you know, to have people who are doing a good job. Um, and uh, I think, you know, if we get a good teacher in every classroom, then that's going to be like most of the problem solved um, in terms of education. You know, there's obviously other things and there's funding and all these kind of things. But, you know, if everyone is, is doing a really highly professional job then then that's going to be and um, we're going to be a lot of the way there to where we want to be in terms of getting a good experience for young people so i mean there's obviously a bunch of different things i mean there are certain um you know values and attributes that you want to see in, in teachers and in many ways that's probably more of a prerequisite than some of the stuff that i've been talking about you don't want people who are cruel to the children and you and you want people who are understanding and have good, can build good relationships good rapport with mm -hmm. um with with the kids and so on. You want people who have really good subject knowledge and are really enthusiastic and are just kind of sell their subject because they're so passionate about it. Um, so I think that, I mean, many of those things are probably fairly obvious to, to most people who are involved in education. Um, I think that, you know, I would say some of the stuff we've been talking about uh, today is, is probably somewhat less obvious, but um, I think still really, really important because you could have somebody who's very enthusiastic, who loves their subject, who cares a lot about the kids, but they're not actually doing a particularly effective job at um, getting them to learn the skills and knowledge that they're, that they're there to help with. Um, so I would say certainly having teachers engage with what effective learning means. And it doesn't mean to say they have to necessarily accept the viewpoint that I'm putting forward, you know, about what effective learning is. But I think that they should at least um, try to inform themselves and uh, engage with some of the up-to-date evidence and, 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 um, and try to understand the debates about, you know, what memory is, what learning is, what metacognition is. Um, and, um, you know, the more we can equip ourselves with these tools, uh, I think the better. And many of it, you know, can actually make teaching an easier job because, mm -hmm. 
you know, the number of times I hear people say, well, I don't have time to do any of these fun activities because we need to go and we need to cram all this stuff for the exam. It's like, well, if we, if we do things in a way that it's more effective and they remember it better, it's actually going to free up time because you don't need to go over it again. You know, they won't have forgotten it by February if you've done it effectively in the first place. So yeah. I think that, you know, we want, um, you know, we want teachers who have a working professional knowledge of how learning works. I think, you know, in, in, in some ways, you could say that's what distinguishes a good teacher from just a decent human being with knowledge of the subject. You know, they need to actually understand how learning functions and, yeah. and to be able to use that in their professional capacity. I think what you're saying as well, though, like we don't have enough time to do these fun activities, we have to get through the work. I think that might come from a lack of CLPL and the stuff that we're, you're talking about here, and a lack of confidence then to, to take that step away from what they normally do to go to maybe a more an effective way for, for learning. Um, and going away yeah. from what, what they've always done, which might be the reason why they're not doing it. Yeah, you could be right. I mean, I think that it's not necessarily the case, um, and I hope I didn't, haven't given this impression, that, that um, doing things in an effective, memory-informed way is a boring way to learn. I think that things, you know, things like, well, like I said to you, spacing, spacing out your practice could apply to anything. So anything that we normally do, we could do it, we could do it after a delay, we could practice it after a delay, or we could practice it immediately. Um, so it's completely neutral as to what the task is. It could be a boring task or a fun task. And something like retrieval, maybe people associate that with doing loads and loads of quizzes and loads of memorization. But, you know, like I was saying before, actually, it's really important we build understanding. So lots of, uh, lots of fun activities could actually be um, very um, appropriate and very um, consistent with the research into memory and, and learning. It's, it's making me think about when I tried to learn the guitar during lockdown for the first time. Um, I didn't space it out well enough and ended up with blisters and calluses all over my fingers. It wasn't the, the most effective technique. Physical effects, I'm not doing yeah, it. Exactly, absolutely. Um, yeah. no, Jonathan, thanks so much for your um, insights there. It's been a great chat. Um, and it, it was made me think... The... On you go, sorry. No, so, no sorry. Just before you go on, it was, quite, it was making me think about the book that me and you were reading, about the teaching delusion uh, by Bruce Robertson, about how uh, teaching and learning in, in our schools isn't as effective as what we think. Yeah. Um, mm. Quite an I don't know if you've read that, Jonathan, but it's, it's quite interesting. I'm 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 aware of it. I haven't actually read of it. Read it, yeah. but um, but yeah, I'm aware of it. Sort of on my on my to read list. Um, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, there are a lot of really good books about teaching, but yeah, I've heard good things about that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's also like quite when when you read little wee bits like that and you get wee insights from the books and stuff. That's actually quite motivating and like you want to go in and like make changes and it's uh, it's, it's good. I, like I think it. so. I think it, yeah. No, that, I've heard that a lot actually, Lewis. It's um. You know, people who start engaging with the evidence actually find it um, liberating and enjoyable and it actually enthuses them and builds their professional motivation because then yeah. they think, well, I can actually control this and I can actually make it better. I don't need somebody else telling me what to do because I understand it myself. Yeah. Um, it can be very motivating for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, but we shall, we've got the, the quick fire round the three questions that we, we always finish off our podcast okay. with. Um, so... We've got three quick questions and it's just kind of three off-the-cuff answers for you there. All right. Okay, number one. If you could have a giant billboard anywhere, what would it say on it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's such a, assuming this isn't just a kind of like, Anything here's my, here's my yeah. PayPal details. And, um, <laughs> We've had a few interesting ones. Donations, welcome. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think... Uh, uh, Assuming we're going to stick to education things here yeah. rather than political yeah. messages. Um, yeah, yeah, let's uh, not go down the political route tonight. 
<laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I suppose that, that you know we could we could sort of argue. Well, what's the point in um, making sure that education is good if we don't kind of sort out various other things in the world? Yeah. Um, but in terms of education, yeah, I think um, if there was you know one one message to, that that I would think that would be really valuable for everyone to understand is that you know learning and and, and memory are, are not intuitive. That don't assume that you know how it works, and yeah. it's really worthwhile to actually take the time to 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 learn how to learn it's going to make everything easier in your life if you actually understand these principles because it's not just at school we go through our entire lives learning new skills and learning new knowledge and having even just a you know, even just learning people's names on a day-to-day -day basis um, yeah it's the worst so. isn't it like you just the first time you meet somebody and then it's like two seconds later you just have no clue what's the the reason behind that do you know or is that just a complete silly question like because that must be a common thing or is it just me? Like you shake someone's hand, you get their names, and then is it just because there's so much going on at the one time that you just forget it straight away? Yeah, I mean, do, how much do you want me to go into this? Oh, but is, <laughs> is there an actual thing about that though? Like, I'm just curious because we've been talking about memory. Yeah, so I mean, we, we talk about like most of what we're talking about is really long term memory, and yeah. what you're talking about is working memory, and it has like extremely right. limited capacity. You can only hold a, is it like maybe a, a kind of a sentence at a time. So if something comes in, it almost is like pushing it out the other side. Um, unless you do something to hook onto that. But I think it's, you know, just best to just ask them again a minute yeah. later, what was your name again? <laughs> Otherwise, you, you end up having the colleague that six months later, you still don't know their name. <laughs> I was just wondering what the, kind of, the, the thinking was behind that, but that makes sense. So All right. thanks, for, thanks for sharing that. Well, you should have your watch night out on Saturday, weren't you? We didn't know any of their names. <laughs> yeah. No clue. It's a good job. You have got name tags on the Zoom call. <laughs> right, Jonathan, number two then. Uh, which people or books have had the biggest influence on your life? Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I could, again, I, if I focus particularly on the, on the learning and education stuff, there's, there's certain researchers that I could mention who've uh, had a massive influence. So some of the stuff about um, things like spacing effect in particular um, derives from work by um, people like Robert Bjork, who's a researcher in the University of California. Um, so it was probably his stuff that I first heard about in connection with spacing. And he actually did research on this back in the 1970s, but like we were saying earlier, you know, it didn't actually become that well known until quite a lot later or sort of widespread. Um, but he's still, he and his lab are still producing lots of really, really valuable research. So I'd say that's a, that's a massive influence. I'm slightly kind of slightly away from the sort of memory side of things. I would say, um, there's some really good research into motivation um, by um, Ryan and Desi are particularly know, known for this sort of, um, self-determination theory, kind of understanding how motivation works. That's a massive influence on me as well. Um, I think more broadly, you know, just I love reading and I'll, I'll, I'll read all kinds of things. I like Agatha yeah. Christie and I like uh, oh. fantasy books and, uh, oh. you know, I, I do read a lot of nonfiction, but, I, you know, I like, I like a good novel as well. Yeah, it's quite a difficult question, isn't it, to pinpoint one, especially if you, you read a lot and whatnot. So. Actually, one other thing I should probably mention is just that um, it's probably not as applicable, but, you know, really just really fascinating is just stuff on evolutionary psychology. I just find it so interesting, um, you know, to think about like how humans evolve and how animals evolve in general and um, sort of books about um, the evolution of the human mind I find, find particularly, particularly fascinating. Um, so things like the selfish gene by Dawkins and stuff like that. I just think it's, you know, these are things that I can remember reading for the first time and just feeling it opened up a whole new um, sort of perspective in my own mind. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Can, I, sometimes it takes like you, you read a book and then you just get a totally different perspective on a lot of things, don't you? You're like, yeah. The book um, *Sapiens*. I just thought that. See my perception. Oh, amazing. On, yeah. On, yeah. on time. See just the whole concept of time after reading that, my mind has just been blown. Like it just makes mm-hmm. you feel how insig- like how short the time spell is. Like you're actually mm-hmm. your existence is in comparison to how old the, the world is, and obviously when all the um, continents and stuff all done their stuff and kind of separated and everything it's just fascinating to, to yeah. think about and a brief history of time is pretty pretty mind-blowing as well i probably only understood about 30 percent of it but what yeah. i did understand was <laughs> it just blows your mind doesn't it mm-hmm. right final one then um what top three tips if you could summarize tonight's episode would you give to a student to help them study more effectively um so i would say uh, study in short sessions um so rather than really really long sessions um go back and test yourself even if you think you've understood something go back a a few days later and test yourself um and try to explain things deeply and make links with them so don't just look at every sort of piece of information as being an isolated piece of information but try to explain the why the how and the why of things if you can if you can't then obviously you know have an attempt you could always ask your teacher Um, but try to make those those connections it's so important actually for the stuff to stick over the long term is that it's actually in a framework it's not just isolated pieces of information yeah, no, it's absolutely um, brilliant. I think it's um, something, this episode in particular, could be pointed in the direction of um, some of our students, Clark, because I think it'll be very, very helpful come, nope. come prelim time. And obviously, well, now even, it doesn't it's necessarily be prelim time. Yeah, exactly, for preliminary exams and things as well. But no, that was a, a, a great insight into, obviously, your experiences as a psychologist and everything you kind of shared with us about memory and how we actually learn. So thanks very much for giving up your time tonight, Jonathan. It's been great to chat with you. Oh, it's been it's been uh, really good really good chatting about it. I enjoyed discussing this stuff. Um, I think I said to you guys I was going to record some some videos as well, so I'll, I'll give yeah, you the links to those. Um, yeah. I've actually recorded them. I've just not kind of like edited out all the bad bits yet. But yeah. um, I'll I'll be sharing those. And uh, you oh, know, thanks very much. It's great if you can you know do things that will will help students a little bit to um, yeah, to really appreciate be more appreciate. successful in their exams. Yep. Yeah, thanks very much. Really appreciate your time. Um, that was absolutely brilliant. Really enjoyed that. Okay, great talking yeah. to you. Well, that brings us to the end of episode number 83 with Jonathan Firth. Um, I can confidently say that now because we get muddled up uh, on the last episode, but we're at 83. Um, and it was on all things study techniques. So that was um, a very interesting episode. I think a lot of teachers and pupils as well will find um particularly helpful um, going into the sort of exam time. Um, but that takes us to the takeaway messages for tonight. Clarky Burrow, what give us your takeaway messages from tonight's episode? No bother, Lucy. Um, <laughs> Mine would be about what he was saying at the end on his key uh, top, his top tip was, was study little and often. Um, I know that was the best way that I studied. Uh, we just try to do like 45 minutes a day um, and just try and, you know, do different types of retrieval practice, as you were saying as well, like visual, written and uh, some sort of active learning as well, like moving, movement and thinking and learning as well. So that's also relevant as well when you're teaching, try and teach with uh, verbal responses, written responses and also um, kinesthetic, which is obviously apparent and more popular in PE. 
um, where they're learning skills within a, a practical environment, but also taking that into the classroom as well and trying to um, <clears throat> show them visual performances of, of, of what you're looking for in, in the practical. Um, so I, that would be, and I, I know there's quite a lot in there, Lewis, don't know if that's maybe too much, but I've tried my best to keep it concise there. Um, sorry if I've blab, blabbed on. I feel like you've taken my, my takeaway message as well, but um, no, I think just to echo what you said there, it's, um, yeah, that was really helpful in terms of how it should be in short sessions and spaced out and then testing yourself often. Um, and I like what you said about testing yourself to find out what you don't know versus testing yourself to see what you do know, because then that obviously highlights the gap in what you've, what you've learned. And then I like the, the part about being able to explain things deeply, so actually finding the connection to prior knowledge that you've maybe learned and see if you can connect it, connect it with that. And if you can explain that piece of knowledge or that content deeply, then it can obviously shows and reinforces that you have learned and it is in your sort of long-term memory, which is... Mm. Um, which is interesting. Those those three wee tips are, are, are absolutely golden, I think, um, and will help a lot of a lot of pupils if they can kind of take that on board. And like you said, just varying up the type of um, teaching you're doing, the type of retrieval practice you're doing, using different sorts of, obviously, like written, visual, um, verbal, listening, videos, everything, you know what I mean? Just to mm -hmm. really deepen that understanding. Totally. Um, and yeah, that's learn learn how to learn, which was his kind of his billboard motto. So really, really liked that episode and taking a lot from it. And hopefully that will help a lot of a lot of people who can tune in and, and listen yeah. to it and take some. Weed I think guys, that's what I'm interested for teachers and pupils. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but is that is it, does that do us for tonight? Have you got anything else you want to to finish off with? No, that's me for that's us for tonight. Episode eighty three done and dusted. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for joining us in this week's episode of the podcast. We hope you've been able to take something away that you can implement into your practice or life. If you regularly listen to the podcast, then why not leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and where we can perhaps improve. That way we can take action and further develop the Obo podcast. Until next time, we hope you have a fantastic week. Take care.